Hey Ian, you ready? I bet I am. What are we talking about tonight? And talk about guns? If it's not a 30 cal, I'm not in. Jeez, mate, that's not very inclusive. Have you seen Jono? Hey Jono, you ready? Well, God knows where he is, mate. He's probably caught up in the neighbour's wire again. Are you ready to go? Let's do this. Mate, I'm ready. Let's crank it up. Righto then. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Hunter's Campfire, where we're going to talk about all things hunting and the great outdoors. And we'll probably throw in a few tips along the way. You want a tip? Say it once, say it a thousand times. Goats love rocks. Or a few things about deer. Mark, what do you reckon about deer? As a deer hunter, I love hunting pigs. Well, that's about as useful as I expected it to be. Oh, check it out. Here comes Jono. He's being chased by the neighbor's dog. Okay, guys, let's get this started. Welcome to the Hunter's Campfire. Pull up a chair, get comfortable. It's time for the Hunter's Campfire. That pause? Pausing. Pause. Right. Pausing now. Ladies gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Hunter's Campfire podcast. It's good to have you here. How's, how, how's it all going over your side of the world, Jono? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks, mate. I've been absolutely smashed with work, um, starting to taper off a little bit. Um, pretty excited now. I can start planning for my hunts. Um, got yeah. my, my bookings in for hunt camp. So oh, there was we'll a talk, highly contested we'll little oh, couple we'll days there. We'll get into it. Um, and, Mark, <laughs> we've had a busy week as well, but we'll talk a bit more about that shortly. Um, just wanted to welcome Rob. Uh, and we're going to say Rob from Athena Spatial is with us uh, tonight. Thanks for joining us, mate. It's been a long time coming now. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to having you on. Yeah, this is going to be a good one for the tech heads for sure. Um, we're, we're promised the layman's version of that so that we can all understand it. So we'll see how it goes. You can mark Rob out of 10 if you like we'll, we'll, uh, as to how well you understand them. But uh, we're going to get into some really interesting stuff about how to e-scout um, and you'll understand a bit more about that when we, we get to that chat. But um, as per usual, we want to have a bit of a chat about the goings-on of going on and, um, yeah, the things that have happened over the last week. It's been a hell of a week, actually, between mm. all sorts of things. So we might kick off with our weekend, Mark, eh? Yes. Oh, look, before we start, oh. you might notice I'm wearing a white Kuyu <clears throat> T-shirt. John I made some disparaging comments about the fact that I only one only one only own one t shirt. I don't know, I you, you 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 wear one of two shirts in every podcast. <laughs> so I've decided that I'm wearing um for the next six weeks I'm gonna different one because I got six of them. So this is the white. <laughs> so they either may change share some may share the same colour, they don't share the same pattern. So this is the white one. So there we go. Oh, we I won. didn't notice that when you joined, you were wearing a, a new colour. That's right. This is the white one, week one. So so I just wanted to clear that up. Uh, I do, do own more than one T-shirt. Uh, so what uh, over the weekend, uh, so starting Friday afternoon, in fact, uh, Ian and I were invited up to Mark Hobbs's property, uh, Mark Hobbs from Bush Edge. Uh, and it was a fantastic weekend. Uh, lots of things. A uh, couple of highlights for me. Um, first time I've ever been driven around in a side by side, the Polaris thing. That blew Never me away. Had that before. That blew me away. Walk everywhere. Yeah. That wasn't experience. I love it. I love it. 
What did you say was going to be the addition to your hunting kit after that weekend? I'm going to buy goggles because I got smacked in the face <laughs> so many times. I but still bugs. got this. Still I got this good. lump. I got stung in the face, and yeah, I got this lump cool. here still. That's still there. Yeah, yeah you can see. I got it. stung in the face on Saturday morning, but in the Polaris, just everything was whacking me in the face. So There's no. I'm going to get screen. myself some, you know, tack goggles. <laughs> um. So um. You know, while Mark's properties in, you know, I suppose traditional deer country, uh, we didn't see that many wild deer, um, which uh, we did see some, but the pigs were everywhere. And there was a couple of true monsters we saw. Uh, Mark and I saw this, a true razorback boar, and it was huge. I think I was having um, a sleeping, wasn't I, that day? Yeah, you were having, that was when you were, you were snoozing. Um, and in About the right. afternoon... <laughs> Afternoon, we did a hilltop sit and looked over, and you could see this massive pig mm. on another property walking up the hill, and it was just like long, like a sausage dog pig. It was this big, long thing. Couldn't figure out if it was a sow or a boar, but it was huge. Uh, and we got in some, uh, managed to get on a couple. Uh, uh, start the morning, literally first morning before light, we bumped a pig straight away, like within, you know, five minutes of leaving and went, oh, God, that didn't work out well for us because the wind was in the wrong position. Then uh, did a did a proper hunt and um, got one. Um, unfortunately, I, we couldn't retrieve it, though uh, all signs was that it, it didn't go too far or we didn't live too much longer, but we still couldn't. In fact, even on the video that Ian took, you could see it was a solid hit, but we couldn't retrieve it. And the day kind of went like that for me um, and it all came together in the afternoon, evening when we were doing this kind of, I don't know, parachuter action. So I had the new BRX, by the way, which was great, and we were in the side-by-side. So Mark's driving, Ian's on spotlight, and I'm hanging out the door. Well, what would be a door because there is no door. And Ian would go, pig. Yeah, you've been in pig. There's not a heap of room for nah. three grown men, let alone two grown men and an oversized man who's in the middle with the spotlight. So, so you carry you get, Mark's half out the door to start with. And I'm, I'm using, and I'm also using an aim point. So Ian would go pig because he could see a pig or pigs. Mark would hit the brakes and I'd jump out and then I'd go, where? <laughs> It's like a where, so I'd kind of where are they looking, and uh, we picked up a uh, we picked up a couple, and um, they were off track, but they were running across the track, trying to get into the um, crown land. In fact, um, they obviously realised the safety of crown land because it was a, it was a uh, boundary line. This one, and the first one uh, shot across the track, and picked it up on the tr- just. Just what the BRX with the aim points for, perfect kind of stuff. And the second one went to ground on that shot and just stayed there. But eventually, it, it lost its nerve and ran across, and I got that as well. And two quite good shot placements too. Because so I was really happy because it was a long day. I think that was like what eight o'clock then, and we kicked. We'd st- we left camp at well, we started the day at four thirty a.m. So it was a long day. So it was good to get them. And I even went out by myself. I was the only one who was keen enough to go out by myself the following morning. Pig hunters. And uh, to go looking for that that one we saw first light that previous day. 
And sure enough, it was there again. But it, And sure enough, I got winded again because what was happening was uh, we were walking, we had the rising sun behind us. And as soon as that sun was just bright enough to see anything, up would come that breeze and off would go the pigs. So it was a really good um, a good time away. Mark was uh, quite a quite a dab hand at cooking steaks. So we had a, um, especially Saturday night, we just had a pure carnivore night. Just <laughs> and well cooked, very relaxing, got to do lots of stuff, lots of video, lots of uh, still footage. Spent some time getting Ian's rifles right as well. So, yeah, it was a really um, productive day. Started bad on um, Friday because we got hit by that 200 mils plus of rain. And um, two of the three roads out of here were flooded. So I had a <laughs> – so just trying to leave was hard enough. Mm. But once we got go- – and, and that rain really stayed with us until we crossed the range there at Warwick. Yeah. So once that was it, it's a, it's a great spot, and it's a it was a really good opportunity for us to do a follow up to your um, scope setup. Um, so you know, I watched Mark's scope setup video. Um, as much as you might believe, we all watch each other's content. We don't, but I watched that one, and uh, I realised that a car torque wrench is not the right thing to use um, <laughs> uh, on a scope. Apparently, they're different to a torque driver. Um, I realised that you don't just screw them up as tight as it you feel like and then go to the range because things don't work properly um so yeah it was good we we put the tape on it excuse me like mark showed and um if you haven't seen that video go and have a look at it it's a great uh, tutorial but we then um use that information and that knowledge and we reset the scopes that were on my rifles so i've had a little bit of a problem with what i thought was um various different calibers um could well have been caliber issues but we've uh, at least eliminated the fact that it was um a dodgily set up scope. So yeah, that was good. It was it was a really productive weekend. Yeah, and we got that yeah. we got that rifle running very nicely in there. So that was Ooh. that was really good too. Um cleaned it up very nicely. Um took a little bit of trial and error, but once it was going, it was shooting fine. So Yeah. Speaking and of scopes, um, actually quickly I want to add my yeah. Steiner Ranger four is finally in stock. Ooh, wow. Not, well, I haven't got it yet, but I've been oh. told it's on its way. So my uh, Steiner for one point uh, one to four by twenty for the uh, nine point three for the Buffalo oh, wow, is that's... finally on on its way. That is very so, nice. I am very excited about that. I've been waiting a few months for that one. So yeah, thanks to Beretta Australia for that one. Happy days. Well, that's really good. Um, and uh, hopefully it'll be here for Red Deer Hunt. Oh, you're not going to use that rifle for Red Day. You're going to probably use the Benelli. No, I'm not going to use it for I'm going to use the Benelli 36 this year. That's my Red Deer. Yeah. So, um, this year. yeah, John and I are lucky enough to have jagged a Red Deer block for the Raw. Uh, one of our one of our listeners, Josh, if he's listening, uh, shout out to Josh. Take, took pity on us for only listening to Mark out there shooting Red Deer. So he's um, given us an opportunity to come out with him. So um be the first time in 10 years I think I've hunted the Red Deer Raw. I, I um I didn't boycott it, but uh, public land um, trumped everything for me just because, you know, the whole dealing with landowners became very difficult. Um, everyone's trying to get access and, and it became really hard. So um, to have someone make the offer was, was wonderful and, yeah, really looking forward. John and I will head out. Mark will be on his block at the same time. So just just watch the banter fire up over the Zolios. It'll be, it'll be an interesting week. <laughs> it'll be, yeah. It's going yeah. to be good. And we're not going to be far far away from each other either. As a no, no, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So Red Deer's on. Next gully over, we're going to be in, or next valley. Yeah, we're pretty gonna be much. In. Yeah. 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 Yep. So um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, you guys, yeah, basically, next hill over. Mm-hmm. Too cool. Rob, do you hunt the Reds? Uh, not yet. So not yet. I'm uh, not far from the uh, Mary Valley, and uh, in the last few years, I've been working on um, getting some access up there. Uh, I've got a property. Um, which is a little bit further north than Noosa, um, that borders some national park that um, has a pretty good mix of um, reds and pigs um, that I've been invited to, but um, haven't been up there yet. Mm. Time, time, time kills us all. Yeah, I actually shot my first ever red in the Mary Valley. So, yeah, nice. But you are up there. I've seen them driving out on the range, uh, yeah. out on the road, out to the range. There's plenty around. You have you have made time for hunt camp. You're coming along. I've the hunt just seen camp. the. I've just seen me the meme about me. Uh, well, <laughs> I've only just seen it. Just yeah. uh, um, we've had a we've had an interesting week with everyone um, that's uh, was was hoping to get to our hunt camp in um, in Nundal in April, uh, logging in and, and booking their consecutive days uh, for you know. Oh, seven or eight days in a row. So we've had quite the banter going on in there. So it's been quite fun. But, hell, what a year to be trying to book public land. I've never seen anything quite like it. Um, I think uh, we crash the website every day. I'm not sure it was just us, but we, we participated. <laughs> um, it was crazy. Rob, have you hunted much public land? Uh, yeah, that's that's mostly what I have hunted. Uh, yep. I don't really have much private access, so uh, mostly private. Uh, sorry, public land. Um and yeah, it has definitely been harder to get on this year. Um, even booking some of the closest stuff to Queensland, I found quite difficult compared to previous years. For this period, or just in general? Just in general. Just in general. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, certainly the stuff close to Brisbane's uh, become quite popular. Um, mm. I'm not going to say that's oh, our I... fault, but we contributors <laughs> again to telling people where to go with their animals. But um, I just couldn't believe that. Um, you know, we had a, a good chat group of 20 people that were on trying to book each night and um, websites crashing seven or eight times before you could get a booking through. And it almost leveled the playing field for those that were trying to get Hanging Rock because Hanging Rock's always been the one that's been really hard to get onto because it's literally a, a five-click process and if you haven't figured out how to do that in five seconds, uh, you're <laughs> off, you don't get it. But because the website was crashing, there were people still being able to get it ten minutes after the bookings open, which is which is not really heard of either. So I'm interested to see how many people got consecutive days. Because yeah. Hanging Rock was Hanging Rock was a struggle. Yeah, oh. I, I was trying to get Hanging Rock, and I got I got two days in a row, and that was it. Then I got booted out. Yeah, under was a struggle. probably by you, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I I actually fluked the day in Hanging Rock on my birthday, so hopefully Did I get you? myself a oh, oh, well, your birthday. And I, um, that I'm a Pritchett. Uh, it's the uh, 18th, and um, last time I was down in Hanging Rock, I had quite a large buck um, spook in front of me, and then run into the next valley, and I heard a heard a shot yeah. about 15 minutes later. Um, was that uh, last actually, year? Yeah, it was. Yeah. 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 Maybe you'll get a nice birthday present this year. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah. We um, had quite a few sightings of the large buck in Hanging Rock last year. Yeah. Yeah, probably that one. <laughs> yeah, it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> well, it was funny because um, we we saw quite a few animals. Um, you know, even just over the back of camp last year, there was a there was a there was a reasonable red deer 
that was roaring up the back in the Blackberries, and there yeah. were people chasing him every day. Um, but no one got onto him. But we'd see him under lights at night time coming back into camp and things like that. So he was around the whole time. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't see anyone post that up as being taken. So hopefully he's still around. But there's so many animals in there. It's, it's going to be a cracking time. Really looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, I, I went into um, that day. I did miss the, the buck. That was in the morning um, just after sunrise. And I went back in that afternoon and um, got a spiker in the same spot, probably, you know, 150 metres away. So um, it's definitely holding... Um, you know, more than just the older bucks or um, just the young ones. There's a mix in there. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a cracking camp. Um, we've got plenty of people coming. We've got some really good giveaways. I like to talk about it now because everyone's secured their spots. Uh, every time we talked about it leading up to booking, it was just more and more people were adding on to the list that were competing for spots. Um, but, yeah, Zolio came to the party and, and they've, they've given us uh, – two satellite navigators, the two Zolios with subscriptions to give away to someone in the group. Um, there's product coming in from Beretta, which we're just waiting on. Um, we've got all sorts of bits and pieces from the likes of um, Gundog Gear and Bush Edge and all sorts of people like that that are, that are looking after us. So uh, for those that did manage to jag a spot, good on you. Looking forward to catching your camp. And uh, I, I look forward to even more sharing with everyone um, how the camp goes. It's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. So look forward to seeing you there, Rob. Can't wait. Dan, did you say Zolio might be making the guys from Zolio might be there as well? Oh, we tried really hard. Um, it clashes with another event that they've already got pre-booked. That's um, a shame. But what they're trying to do is send us up a number of demo devices so that mm. people don't have them that are, that would like to try them um, can can take a device have it configured by us uh, in the camp and then you can oh, take yeah, it pair it yep yep yeah we can pair it to your mobile phone we will probably won't set up all the SOS features because you know who knows what's going to happen if you uh, start pushing SOS buttons and it goes off to whoever looked after that Zolio last I'm not quite <laughs> sure how we manage that but um, we will have um, Starlink in camp so we'll have access to, to the internet while we're there so that we can actually configure them properly. Um, and, yeah, if you if you want to try them out. Uh, I'm still yet to find out whether we're going to try and put them all on the same account so you can go to a master screen back at camp and see where everyone's wandering yeah. around. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Might be fun. giving away your secret spot with that big well, buckers. Thing, mm-hmm. eh? Some people are like, oh, I don't want to carry it. I don't want you to tell me where I am. But you just go hanging on a tree and leave it there for the day. Yeah. Everyone thinks mm-hmm. you're sleeping. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say quickly, while you're talking about the Zolio and the SOS, did you see that new feature that they've released where you can actually test the SOS function? Yeah. 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 That's Real pretty cool. cool. Yeah. That's yeah. that's something we asked about it. I don't know if you remember that, um, yeah. about if we can actually test the functionality, and they've actually released that, which is pretty yeah. cool. You can that's actually something do you can't a, do with a PLP. Because yeah. no. PLP's got battery, the battery test, but you can't test the function. So, yeah, I think mm. it's fantastic that Brilliant. they've worked with Global Rescue so that you can simulate simulate an issue and and you know and, and test that it works properly i think that's great because mm. i think something we should we should probably do that one day is book book that in and actually show it show how you do it i think that'll make um, you know, how easy it is to do yeah yep i think so we'll see how that goes all right what else have we got we we, we covered all of the news for the the week that's gone right. by mark shot pigs yeah pigs Pretty happy. Happy. shooting pigs. An incredible meme of, of Mark shooting a goat in the balls. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw it. 
Can I I'm surprised it took them this long. Well, man, I, I tend not to look, look. The thing is, I tend not to look at Instagram, not because I don't like it. I just don't do it all that often. So I saw the thing. Have you seen Mark? I said, well, I've got to look at that. And it oh. took me a while to find it. There it is. Very There's actually two of them, or it's the same one. It might be the same one. Same one. Caught up with the last episode, Rob, but Mark, Mark talked about uh, his, his accidental um, castration of a goat with a whatever, 308 probably. <laughs> Uh, uh, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, and went, oh, oh, and what I realised, that's what was flying off. Did you go and find it? Are you thinking, why? Why, why not? <laughs> because I'm, because, well, probably for this reason, it was the, tr- the goat had a trophy rack. And whilst his... But he was missing his trophy. His testicles trophy. may have been quite impressive. That's what I wasn't focusing on. Yeah, okay. Maybe it was a trophy set of testicles. I was focusing on, actually... Gonna go get it. No. Oh, there we go. Oh, is it, oh, is that uh, that's him there. Mm. Really? There you go. I think so. Yeah. That's our friend there. There he is. So first shot. Immortalized. So you think about that goat. You know, in a way, he's been far more immortalized than did you? Most, did you? Most goats. <laughs> Did you shoot him in November? Was it No Nut November or? No Nut November, no. Uh, I can tell you when I shot him because I love the pictures. Not of the nut, of course, but I love the picture of the trip. Um, I hate to see what you're shooting in January. <laughs> dry January and, yeah, you know, shoot dry I'm trying to think. Was it 2017 or 2015? I think it was 2017. I'm going to look at that as we talk. So right. 2017, and it was pretty hot. So, uh, no, actually, no, it was before that. It was 2015. It was, oh. in fact, November. So it was No Nut November. Well, <laughs> it was November. I didn't regard as No Nut November at the time, and I didn't give it much thought until just now. But, yes, it was November in 2014. Excellent. So that's the date <laughs> of, of, the, of the event. So, off the back of a couple of other conversations we had about projectiles and hydrostatic mm-hmm. shot, things like that, we've had a couple of mm-hmm. sidebar chats about shot placement. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a conversation about it on the weekend about shot placement, and um, mm-hmm. I always, as far as I can possibly remember, um, I've always gone a, a heart lung shot just in behind the the front shoulder, or you know, in the chest cavity, but behind the leg. Um, I'm starting to think that collapsing the animal by shooting it through the shoulder is a better answer because last year over the various different trips that we went on, the deer don't tend to stop with a shot that just runs through the heart and the lungs. It doesn't kill them on the spot. Um, And I was interested in the hydrostatic shock conversation to see whether, you know, we would talk any more about the impacts of that 
and just the you know the if you want to call it the blast radius that's inside the animal and and what it actually does to it but for, from what i can tell um you know you can get 100 meters out of an animal once it's lost its heart or its ability to breathe it can it can carry on on adrenaline right um and you know we had that slam trip Jono, and that night i shot a goat and a deer and both of them went over the cliff because they had the ability to move um you know 20 or 30 meters so asking asking the question again we've talked about shooting it through the shoulders instead as a as a as a way of collapsing it is that a shot you guys take is that something you preference now and we, we're moving into the rut and the raw the animals are bigger when you're talking about chasing stags and bucks um high percentage shot compared to the other what do you think i've given this a lot of thought um and the reason for it is there's a question uh, and i think it's a misnomer but there is a question of ethics in regards to this so if you say you shoot for the shoulder to immobilize an animal it's assumed that immobilization is number one priority and death is priority yeah. number two which kind of sounds wrong whereas a heart lung is always agreed as a kill shot but it doesn't immobilize the animal as we all know they move and a deer can move it make some you can cover some ground in, in 10 seconds so but the reality i think is that as we all know if you land a successful heart lung shot that animal doesn't expire as soon as that bullet strikes it it doesn't you know it it runs it can move it might move 60 yards it might move 100 yards it might move whatever it is so we know that it's not dead but it's dying very quickly um i think with a, a well-placed shoulder shot it's exactly the same time from impact to death so i don't think it's any way is it less ethical it's just that the animal doesn't move in that period of time between impact and expiry. And, and, so, on, and, on, and on that as well, it also, if you're intending to eat that animal, which we all pretty much do, if you're aiming slightly behind the shoulder, hot lung shot, you're going to recover more meat. I find if you blast, especially on a small fellow, oh, you hit the shoulders, you. The, the meat damage is significant. So That's right. It um, is. But to me, I'd rather it dead and then get what meat I can rather than, because to me, neither of those two are good meat shots. To me, a meat shot is a neck shot. So if, well, I yeah, if you're not going to neck shoot it or head shoot it outside of that, that's it. Personally, I try and go slightly behind the shoulder. Mm. For me, the reason for that is I grew up shooting large animals. So mm. you look at like a kudu or an eland, you want to try and avoid the shoulder because Quite often, the bullet can, if you're not using a really good quality bullet, it can disintegrate on the shoulder. So you want to get just behind it to miss that that big bone, big red stag, big samba stag. Potentially, you don't have a good bullet. It's not going to penetrate through to the hot lungs if you hit that shoulder. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm assuming good rounds, mate. I'm assuming good rounds yeah. on the shoulder. But not everyone's going to have that. No, right. no. But to but me, not, that's that's also a question of ethics. You, I, I don't want to shoot anything. That's not. I'd rather flatten it. Over, overkill it and then lose 20% of meat, then undercook mm. it. Um, and so to me, again, that's where the, the, this whole question around ethics comes into this in a play. Um, 
So, for instance, like if I can shoot a, a buck or a stag in a state forest in the shoulders, I will do that'll be my primary shot because one, I'll it, you know, one, it won't run, and two, I'll be able to retrieve it uh, and um, easy, more easily retrieve it. And I'll just go, well, if I lost the meat, I've lost the meat. And yep. A yep. good 30 cal shooting, or actually less than a 30 cal, but a 30 cal shooting a reasonable projectile will smash a shoulder on a deer, if not both shoulders, <laughs> I think. I, I mean, I, I, it's different if you're shooting, you know, Cape Buffalo or NT Buffalo. Um, and, I've again, I've, I've even faced that, that herd bull. When it put that big leg in front of where I was <laughs> aiming for, I went, I don't know if I can break that, you know, or mm. I don't know if I can break it in such a way that we're not chasing this thing for five k's across or the floodplain. from it mm. for five k's. Yeah. Well, I didn't think we were going to run for it, but I was worried we are going to be following this thing up for a long time well, in croc country. There was that video that I shared of that Cape Buffalo where the bullet actually bounced off the yeah, shoulder. Off yeah, that's bounced it. off it. Yeah. yeah. So, what yeah, projectile so, I'm not sure what it was. A, I think it was a 375. I don't know the yeah, exact make. Big round. Mm. Big round. Yeah. You could yeah. see the round bounce off. The animal, yeah, yeah. Crazy, I've, yeah. I've seen a, a like a triple two bounce off a pig. I've literally seen it kind of yeah. puff up on the pig, and the pig just keep going. If I was so, hunting, if I was hunting a triple two, I'd be head shooting or neck shooting. Yeah, I'll <laughs> yeah, be shooting rabbits. If you're a if you're a really confident shooter, you know neck shots, head shots, they're good, right? But um, you know you got a lot of people that come on these trips that they might pick up a rifle two or three times no. a year. Um, you know, taking headshots is is no good. Nope. Too many jaws get blown off animals. Um, distances are really uh, quite um, close in state forest. Um, yep. I, uh, this is one of the things I was going to raise. I want to go back to hydrostatic shot first, though. If you take a shot and you and you nail it through the shoulders, like you're talking about, Mark, are you mm -hmm. finding that? The inside of the cavity is also jellifying with that hydrostatic uh, shock as well. There's a very good chance that bone fragments will go flying through that animal. Yeah, yeah, okay. And yeah. that's not a hydrostatic shock. That's just, that's simple destruction caused by Look impact. Yeah, yeah. That that's just that's just that bullet driving through. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you will find at least one blade is disintegrated, and it's not uncommon to find bits and pieces and you know slashes all through it. Same if you you know if you um if you shoot a, a a pig up in you know up in the skull, it's not uncommon to find damage beyond that when when things let go inside and start flying around inside. So that that's also uh you know that's also a consideration. I mean I think the the best percentage shot for most hunters is heart lung. Yeah, especially on especially on the animal, you know, on a deer or a goat or a, a pig's a bit harder because it's in a slightly different position on a pig. It's lower, but if you think about a deer or a goat, it's a big area. You should be able to confidently hit heart lung. If you don't hit the heart, you will certainly collapse lungs. If you hit both, you collapse the whole lot. Um, just be aware that it it may. The, that kill shot might not translate into instant death. It may move. It will. It will probably move. Yeah. So you need to be prepared for that. But from a, I suppose from my, as you know, that you made a good point where you spoke about 
people's experience about shooting an animal, heart lung is a is a is a, a high percentage um, shot. Shoulders a little bit trickier, but it's not not hard. But it's a, it's a trick. It takes a bit more practice or a bit more yep. understanding of what you're shooting at. It's a shame to lose an animal because mm. you know it's dead. You know you've hit it in the right place and it finds its way 100 meters underneath some bracken fern and you just can't recover it. Yep. It's a real pity on the weekend. Right, and on the weekend, right. you know, we were yeah. we were following that pig up, and it wasn't like we were just, you know, there was significant damage. Yeah, you know, we were finding damage. We were finding damage in 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 the scrub, but still kept going. Yeah, Rob, do you have a preference? What's your preference for deer hunting specifically? Yeah, look, I've uh, I haven't really had any um, had any shots of deer over a hundred meters, so. I, I have been quite confident to take shoulder shots, but, um, yeah. but I've also found that um, hunting in state forests in uh, New South Wales, uh, with the range, I've been lucky enough to get a, a slightly quartering shot um, and have quite often taken the, the far shoulder. Mm. Yeah. So going through the chest, um, whether yeah, just in front or just behind the front arm, um, and got the back shoulder, which is you know obviously fortunate. And that animal would have just no, basically nosedived yeah, on the spot. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think if I was taking a longer shot, um, you know, you you consider the terrain. When you, Ian, when you're talking about before, you've got a you know a cliff uh, near the animal. Maybe you would um, preference the shoulder. Uh, I think at my level and my experience, um, I'd probably go the heart lung for now. Mm. Um, but you know, you, you take in the information you got, uh, and you make the best. It's a minor if you, adjustment if, to move from heart lung across to the shoulder. It's not difficult to yeah. change that to change <clears> that uh, that aim point. We've got good rounds and good rifles. I don't I don't expect that hitting it in the right place is going to be hard. Uh, yeah. I just had started to consider changing my preference um, to collapse the animal on the spot. You know, you can have a quick follow up shot. That's fine. Um, there's a percentage wasted to meat, Jono, that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, but you lose a whole lot when you don't get it at all. Oh, but <laughs> meat, meat recovery is second, secondary. You've got to get that animal down. That's yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, if you don't get the animal down, yeah. you're going to lose the whole thing. I'd rather waste a few. <laughs> that, that, that's my, that's my, I'd rather have 60% than then zero. Up. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> and then be sitting in camp for the next two days going, what went wrong? What went wrong? What went wrong? <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. still going around in my head. It goes to my next um my next question, and, and, and if I thought about it, I would have known known this anyway, but um, I had a shot on a deer last year on this um, hunt camp. So there were two two uh, young spikers wandering around together. The dog indicated. I shot one of them. The other one went forward about 10 metres, stopped right in front of me, right in front of me, and I put a headshot on it. And I don't know why. I know I don't, I don't do headshots. I never do headshots, but it was right there, and it filled the whole scope. And I was like, Oh well, this this is going to be great meat recovery, and I missed it. it was, and it was right in front of me. And of course, the the um, going through the process with the scopes over the weekend, Mark. You know, you reset the scope, then we put a twenty five meter target out, and then a hundred meter or a fifty meter, then a hundred meter. <coughs> the difference between a zero hundred and a twenty five meter placement is significant. Yeah, you can see mm-hmm. why people blow jaws off animals because yeah. the, the 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 distance. There would have been probably close to three inches between the 25 meter target and the 100 meter target and drop. Um, 
and probably for a year I've thought about that shot and why I even took a headshot because um, I should have just gone back and shot it in the, in the, you know, like I normally do, but I took the chance and, and, and it wandered off and I had no idea why. Um, it made no sense, but it makes perfect sense when you look at shot placement on paper. If you don't get the opportunity, maybe understand that. The thing about also with deer headshots is unless you're in a very comfortable position with that deer, their heads never stay still. You know, they're, yeah. they're not like pigs, you know. If a pig's snuffling something, it's always down. The, it's got a big bucket head, you know. It's, when you're, it's a when fairly you're big target. When you're um, goats are the same too. Goats, you know, they don't tend to move their head that much. But when you watch deer, they, you know, there is twicking and things like that all the time. So it's actually, yeah. it is, I think it's a very difficult shot um, to, to make, you know, and... Yeah, if you were hunting under lights or you were hunting on a feeding on a mob of feeding deer, and they're in an open paddock, and you had the ute there, and you had a nice rest, and you had a good scope, and everything was comfortable, you could probably pull a, you know, you could comfortably do headshots. But if you're in a state forest and the animal's moving, and you know, there's your your field of view is obscured by all sorts of things, that's a tricky. That is a tricky shot. Mm. It is a really tricky shot, and it's again, you know, it's you get down to that percentages, and it's yeah, that's a. I mean, guys, guys can do it. You know, I've met guys who can shoot. You know, basically, you know, flies at five hundred meters, as they say. But um, doing that on a live animal that's a prey animal that's always, you know, ears are pricking up and moving because of its, you know, its existence as things that want to eat it, um, is is not an easy shot. Well, I learnt that, and now I've gone through the theory and understand it. It's just a real shame. You kick yourself for a, a period of time when you miss them in state forest. State foresters, they're hard enough to come by. Mm. So work pretty hard and, mm. and uh, let them go like that it was a bit silly, but I'm glad I've sort of understood it for myself. So yeah, anyway, just wanted to cover that. Let's um, let's talk about tech stuff, Rob. Yeah. Okay. Where do you want Where to start? I'm ready. <laughs> it's sitting there quietly. So, um, <laughs> Rob, uh, you've been you've been uh, listening to some of the work that we've been putting out on social media and approached just a little while ago to talk about um, GIS mapping. I guess you'd, you'd call it GIS mapping, um, and how you can do a whole lot more from home in an e-scouting capacity if you sort of understand a few of the basics and some of the tools that are out there and, and what you can do and you were kind enough uh, to provide us uh, a map overlay for a private block that we were going on. So a lot of us know what a Venza is. You know, when you book a state forest hunt, you can, um, well, you have to, you go and download the maps and you put them on a Venza and it follows you around the park with a blue dot, uses the magic of GPS in the sky to do that. Um, but there are layers and layers of additional data that you can add to that if you know what you're doing. Uh, and it was quite incredible when you started showing us um, you know, water points and, you know, places you might be able to stand and how many water points you might be able to see. I think we were talking about Northern Territory a little while ago and you were talking about flood mapping and where the water might recess and leave billabongs and lagoons mm. and things like that. There's so yeah. much of that information out there that's available, but you, you've you um, created a business about around 
compiling that information and 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 making it easy for someone to to come and purchase a map set off you. So that's the framing of of how of how we uh, came about to this conversation tonight. But uh, yeah, it'd be great if you could share some of your insights and and tools and tips and tricks and things that people might be able to do from home. Um, you know, leading into the rut and the raw. So, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. There's an opener for you. So I, um, the, what I would say is, first of all, that, um, you know, nothing, nothing beats scouting on the ground. Nothing will beat boots um, and eyes and ears on the ground uh, when it comes to um, gathering information about an area. Um, but, uh, you know, for, for myself and a lot of um, people I know, um, I have limited time to hunt during the year and, you know, living in Queensland, if I was to travel down to Victoria on a Samba trip, um, I don't want to spend four days scouting a valley or a system um, just to find uh, somewhere to glass from or, you know, try and find some likely animal locations. I want to make use of all the information that's out there on the internet um, and and narrow that down as much as possible so I can spend more time hunting in earnest. Um, luckily, through my previous employment, um, I've learned some pretty good um, techniques and I've gathered some good skills. Um, I spent some time in the Army um, and was working with geospatial analysts for a while um, and learned some really cool stuff. Um, obviously, we use... Um, we use some tools that you can buy, uh, some certain software, but there's there's plenty of open source stuff out there uh, that anyone can use. Um, you know, from the real basic like Google Earth Pro um, up to the more complicated. Um, there's a uh, software that I call that's called QGIS, which is what I use to make those products for you guys. Um, it's free; anyone can download it. If you get on YouTube, there is a wealth of knowledge out there. Um, really good tutorials on how to use it if you're willing to put in the time. Um, and another person I've heard um, you guys talk about, I think you might have even had him on, was Errol Mason. Mm -hmm. um, his Hunt Smart system, I read that uh, about 12 months ago now, and um, some of the information in that was just unreal. I was really hesitant to buy the book uh, when I did, because um, it, is, it is quite expensive. Uh, for the average bloke, I think, but um, after buying it, um, I was just blown away. And uh, a lot of the information that he gives away in that, I use um, for all species of deer when I do my e-scouting. Uh, when you start speaking specifics about elevation um, or vegetation types, um, all of this information is available for free through um, government data repositories. Um, and all of us can download it. And even if you don't want to, you know, go down the, the QGIS path or the more complicated tools, just using what's available on Google Earth um, is quite powerful. Um, Errol Mason goes uh, into it a bit in his book, um, with Google Earth specifically, but there's a, there's a lot more you can do um, that's not covered in that. Um, you know, most, most hunters are quite smart people. Um, they've got fairly um, logical ways of thinking, um, and they're, most hunters that I know um, are quite good at keeping a, a bunch of encyclopedic knowledge in their brain. Mm. But if you actually put a bit of time into you know, writing that down in a spreadsheet um, or even just a notebook or a Word document, 
and then using tools like Google Earth, uh, you can really narrow down or improve your chances of finding animals before you get uh, to a hunting ground. Interested in um, in understanding the vegetation side. So you can go and research what you're saying. You can go and research the vegetation that the animals like to eat, and then mm. how do you then layer that on top of mapping software? The trees are trees are tree when you're looking from the sky. Trees are trees are tree when you're looking from the sky. Um, if you are, this is probably one of the ones where you need to um, spend a bit more time learning some of the more advanced techniques. Um, but there's a method where you can essentially use the computer um, and you can train it. So you could um, say you have a, a satellite image that covers, you know, 10 by 10 kilometers. You could draw little shapes on certain patches of trees um, that you know to be a certain type of tree. So let's say you've walked down a valley in Victoria uh, and you know where the, the cherry trees are lining the river or sitting at a certain elevation. Uh, you, could, you could bring up that imagery, draw circles around those cherry trees, and while to us it just looks like another green pixel compared to the green pixel eucalyptus five metres away, um, GIS software can tell the difference and it will classify it and give it a, a value, a mathematical value. Um, and if you train it well enough, you can then say, right, now look at this other area and tell me no. where all the cherry trees are. Um, no, no, really? You can. You can. <clears throat> and, you know, Chat the, GPT for trees. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, now, to get to that point, you know, you're going to put in a few hours. You're going to have to learn a few basics about different data types and about the, um, the software you're using itself. But it's possible. It's absolutely possible. Um, so, so we, as a, you know, we don't want to give away your entire business uh, set of skills here. But I mean, the average Joe's not going to have the time to go and learn this stuff if it's not part of their world. Um, some will. Do you do you um, go and create a database of all of those, you know, different? trees or different things that you might want to go and search and layer that across any map or is it map specific you know you've got to find a cherry tree in that 10 by 10 grid and then let it scan across the rest is it the same the same can, can you put the same what, what did you call it your reference number onto yeah. a map next year and it will do the same thing are you, are you is the data transferable if you use the same region you should be able to just update your imagery and it will work. Um, if you were to, you know, look at it, if you were to look at cherry trees in Victoria and then try find them, you know, somewhere in the Northern Hemisphere, it may not work as well. Um, it's not to say that it won't, um, but basically uh, the way I explain it is um, if you just have a value from zero to a hundred and um, every color within that image is given a value, um, let's say cherry trees are 27, it learns that um, you know, every, everything with the value of 27, it thinks is a cherry tree. Um, it's relative to everything else it sees in that image that it's sampled. Whereas if you were to increase that image, um, it may screw the results slightly. But if you were to just update that image, you're probably going to have the same rough range. Um, and it should work year on year. For example, if you wanted to you know, track vegetation growth or loss in an area, 
um, that you frequent, it, it should be quite reliable. Mm. Yeah, but this is advanced stuff. This is, um, you know, I don't even do this for myself to be honest, because um, it, oh, that, that type truth, of analysis, too. that type of analysis would be too consuming. Having said that, um, I'm probably only going to hunt Victoria once um, in the next 18 months, um, and I actually might put a bit of effort into it. Um, but the probably the the most useful thing out there um, to people that don't want to go into um, that much detail. Google Earth is is just amazing. Um, you can actually gather a lot of information just from looking at a raw image without trying to turn it into any sort of um, special data type. You know, just looking at the information you get from a photo itself is really powerful. Um, you know, you guys would know you can look at you can identify choke points. Um, mm. You know, choke points by elevation, choke points by vegetation. Um, you can identify waterways. Um, a really good example of what the average person can do on Google Earth is there's a, a feature in there. Um, I can't quite remember the name of it, but I think it's called Time Slider or History or something like that. So, you know, you bring up an area that you'd like to hunt um, and you click on the, the little clock icon and you can slide back through all of the imagery that has been captured in that location for, for in some instances, decades. Um, yeah. And, and that's that. amazing. You know, like if, if you think about. Um, I, don't want, I want to open the, Google Earth right now. No, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of itching <laughs> towards it as we speak. Google Earth Pro. So Yeah, I've got, that's what I've got. Google Earth Pro. I'm looking yeah, at it right now. Yeah. A, a lot of people, you know, use Google Maps in the browser or use Google Earth in the browser. But if you actually download the Google Earth Pro app, which is 100% free, yep. um, I think it's the best thing for most people. Well, I use Get it a the, lot. I use a lot, but I, I not I, I didn't know that feature existed. That's awesome. Well, yeah, it is. yeah, yeah, it is. It, I just clicked on it and it goes back to nineteen thirty one. Yeah, there Holy you go. Dooly. So you keep talking, keep talking. <laughs> you know, you think, okay, what can you do with that? All right, you know, there's more trees one year, less trees the next year, stuff like that. Well, you know, you can look at that and go back and look at a bit of historical weather data. And say, for example, you look at 2022's image and 2010's image, and you go, right, I could only see one water source um, in 2010, but I can see 10 water sources in 2020. Holy smokes. All right, you suddenly, if we come into a drought period again, you're going to narrow down the water source that you walk into um, in the first instance. Okay, I've, um, just pulled, I've just pulled up Tugalo and it goes back to 1984. Yeah, that's where's, awesome. Where's the clock? It, if you've got Google Earth Pro, up you at just the top. open it up and it's just up the top. It's just, it's just it's a little Next to the sun. Clock, clock face that has an arrow that's going, you know, counterclockwise, mm. going backwards in times. Yeah, and I'm yeah. looking at Tugalo and yeah, and it's, yeah, I can, I can. Well, yeah, because I opened the Hanging Rock one and it goes back to 1984. It's probably the same image, but yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, it colors change everything. Yep. yep. Wow. Now, oh, I mean, when, when they take these images, things the like clock. the angle of the sun, um, oh, yeah, of course. stuff like that will <laughs> impact the image. But, um, you know, you compare a few and you figure it out. Damn, right. You could do that. That's amazing. I did not know you could yeah. do that. Yeah. All right. So, have, you guys seen the, have you guys seen the sunrise sunset feature on Google Earth Pro? No, no. Okay. Huh? I have. I can see it. <laughs> okay. Shadows, here we come. Shadows, yeah. This is, this is probably one of the best ones. So... You know, we all we're all looking for um, 
you know, the northeast, northwest facing aspect of any bit of terrain. So we can yep. study a map in 2D, look at the contour lines, figure out, you know, roughly where northeast and west is or exactly where northeast and west is on a certain feature and assume or we can make an assumption about where the sun is going to hit that feature first as it rises or sets. If you go into Google Earth Pro, you can use the sun slider and it adjusts for the specific date of year that you're looking for. It knows the angle that the sun is going to be on. It knows the angle the sun is going to set on. And as you drag the slider up and down throughout the time of that day, it will show you where the sun is going to hit the earth first and where it's going to be at the end of the day as it drops down. So if you are trying to find a spot, say you're looking at a um, the northeast tip of a, um, a finger of terrain and you know, oh, you're looking smart. at 300 meters oh. of elevation, you can narrow down to probably within 50 meters of elevation where the sun is going to hit uh, So I've got like, uh, the latest I can do is the first of the, of the first two, 2024 on Tugalo. Okay. Yep. Um, and I'm just sliding through the day. And you can just see, you know, it, it like um, not a great change for like from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., but as you get to around 4 p.m., all of a sudden this shadow effect starts laying over the ground and then into night. And then the next morning where is going to be in sunlight and what's going to be in shadow as, as the sun rises. Oh, there you go. That's a good one. That's a good one. And um, I, I actually, when I use this one, I take a few screenshots. Um, and if there's a there's a few areas of terrain that don't quite, you know, point north or south, and it's a bit harder to try and figure it out from staring at a map, I'll take a couple of screenshots on this, send it on my phone. Um, and then <laughs> if I walk through that area the day before, or, you know, when there's more light, I'll try and find a spot where I can observe that um, sunny part of the the feature as i move around and i'll come back to there you know the next morning i've just done this weird thing where i've hit the sky so it tells me what the yeah. sky looks like above yeah at yeah, that that's day a cool yeah. that's a cool one too yeah i think the moon and it shows you what the moon looks like as well. <laughs> i haven't, so I haven't moon phase. that one to see if it matches but i assume that they've put a bit of effort into it mm. yeah you got moon phase yeah yeah Holy smokes. It's cool. It's cool. Uh, you know, there's limitations to it. Um, obviously, the, the, the resolution or the quality of the elevation data sitting under that Google Earth layer will affect how accurate it is. Um, but anywhere in Australia, it's pretty good, to be honest. Um, mm. it, it's certainly good enough to make a rough plan off. Mm. Um, and then you're going to get there on the ground and you're going to, you know, if you're doing a three-day hunt, you're going to make minor adjustments. And hopefully by the third day, you've got it dialed right in to exactly where, um, you know, the sun first touches a feature and where the, you know, the deer are going to come out. So it's pretty good. It's pretty good. That is amazing. That is incredible. There we go. Another, another tip I would give um, oh, okay. for I'm, I'm, Google I'm keeping, thing, keeping this thing open. Keep going. <laughs> I'm still moving the dateline. I haven't caught up to the sun. <laughs> There's a, um, if you go into your settings somewhere, I should, get Google Earth up myself and try and talk it through properly. But there's a um, there's a feature called elevation exaggeration. And what this does is you can adjust that number. It's a number between zero and three. 
to oh. better make the 3D image that Google Earth Pro gives you actually match what it looks like on Earth. So, you know, you can imagine um, the Google Earth engine is trying to render a 2D image over the top of some elevation yeah. data to mm -hmm. give you a, what looks like a hill or a valley. If you know an area really well, zoom into that location, I'm there. Open, up your open up your settings and go into elevation exaggeration and start from one and move up in probably increments of 0.2 and try and find what you think looks most accurate what you've seen on the ground. Oh, okay. Um, so you can you can tune it. So, for instance, you, you can tune it to what you yeah what yeah yeah. So it's, it's yeah. So it's under terrain. You can do elevation exaggeration. Also scales yep. 3D buildings and trees anywhere from 0.01 to three. I, I I would say just start at one point two five. Um, if you look at other um, YouTube videos about e scouting that the Americans do, they're you know they're pretty good at it as well. Um, a lot of them will tell you start at one point. Two five, um, and then adjust from there. Uh, but I found that to be pretty good for me. In, I really know what the terrain, brother. Jono. Yeah, it's in options somewhere. John. Options. Yeah, so if you click on tools and then options. Yeah. And then about halfway down the page, it says terrain. Use it, elevation oh, yeah. exaggeration. Yeah. Isn't. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. Um, I use that just to um, try and get a good feel for, you know, how hard a walk in or out of an area will be mm. um, because I have found in the past, you know, I look at, look at it That's and it'll be set so to cool. one. I think it's set to one by default. Um, and it then is you one. Get there, yeah. That and then is you get so there good. It's way steeper. It's way steeper. Yeah, yeah um, for sure. And like this place that I've been um, looking at and have been to a couple of times now, I go back into Google Earth and it looks flat. And I know it's not flat. Yeah, but, you yeah. know, you just deal with it because you know, and I've just changed it from 1 to 1 1.5 and it's now, holy dooly, that's mm. a real, that actually shows Nundle for what it is. Yeah. Yep. That's good. Because Nundle's right, not well. flat. <laughs> it's not flat. Mm. I just found that not far from where I was is a massive canyon drop-off. Anyway, there's, um, there's another feature. Um, there's another feature which is really powerful if you use it the correct way. It's called the um, the view shed tool. Um, so what you need to do on Google Earth Pro is you actually need to drop a pin. And yep. then once you've got a pin on the map, you can right click on that pin um, and go down to show view shed. So what that will do then, Google Earth um, Pro engine will looks at the ele uh, sorry the yep the elevation of where that pin is in on earth and it will measure all the surrounding elevation and anywhere that you can see from that point it will turn it into a green color so anything that's not green in theory you can't see from that location now this does have limitations so this goes off the um the quality of the elevation data like i mentioned before but it by default, usually uses an observer height of zero, which is basically ground level. Now we are usually sitting at least a meter above mm -hmm. the ground. If you're taking mm -hmm. a knee, and you know if you're tall, you can probably put that at 1.75 meters. Um, and I think you can adjust those values in Google Earth Pro. You certainly can in more advanced software. Um, but you can get a really good idea, a general idea of the observation from a given location. 
know, observation yeah, so doesn't necessarily equate to, um, my, you know, to being able to shoot because you've got things like vegetation that will limit that. Yeah. Um, but it gives you a good idea in terms of the height of the terrain about what your options are. Now, the best way to use this, uh, logically, a lot of people would look at that tool and go, right, I've done my map reconnaissance. I think that, you know, these five spots are the best glassing areas in a given system. They would then use the view shed tool from those locations to see what they can see. And that is a yeah. good, you know, a smart way to use the tool. The way I use the tool, I use it last. So once I've done all of my other analysis and I try and narrow down where I think the animals are going to bed, where I think they're going to feed and where I think they're going to transit from one spot to the other and where the choke points on those transit lines are, I then do the view shed analysis from those locations, from the animal's point of view. Because then anywhere that's green, theoretically, I can observe that location from there. So instead of narrowing your observation options down to a few observation locations, you suddenly are focusing on what you can see from where the animal is likely to be. Yeah. And you have a heap more options available to you. And then you can use things like the weather or the wind on the day and say, right, you know, I've got five options in the north to go to. I've got six options in the southeast to go to to observe those locations where I think the animals are going to be rather than, you know, being um, limited by what seems like a good observation location based on height or um, observation over a valley, for example. So much more you can do with this. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna have, to, I'm gonna have to start looking at Google. Off, I'm going to have to start YouTubing Google Pro for beginners or something like that. There's um there's some really good YouTube resources out there. Um there's mm. there's heaps of good um American stuff. You know, commercial vendors giving good free information as well as just punters like us. Um, I would certainly say you know, don't don't spend money getting someone else to do this for you. Um, don't buy fancy apps that can do it for you. You guys can do this yourself on Google Earth Pro. Um, and it's not you know, the if you best YouTube like in the world, Rob. <laughs> I uh. I'm all about um, teaching a man to fish rather than giving yeah, him the fish or selling him the fish. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm all about that. And, and a lot of the, the people that have come to me since um, listening to the podcast, um, you know, I've taken that approach and um, helped them out um, for as long as they needed it. Um, but I certainly try and give people the power to do it themselves. That's amazing. Um, and some of them mm. are quite grateful. A few of the um, contract tutors that uh, have approached me and other types of land managers. Yeah. But yeah. One, one thing I'll quickly add, um, what you're talking about, YouTube, trying to learn yourself is, um, yep, you can use searches like, you know, e-scouting, um, Google Earth for hunting, things like that. Um, but also look up um, Google Earth for open source intelligence or OSINT, so O-S-I-N-T. Um, and a lot of those guys that use it for different reasons um, actually, you know, some really good tips and tricks on how to um, get the most out of Google Earth. And, you know, we've got the hunting knowledge. You just need to apply that knowledge to the skills that they'll teach you about the tool. Um, and, and you'll probably find a bit more than you will just with the hunting guys. Amazing. You know, for example, found you could... how to use Google Pro Earth beginners tutorial that I'll be watching. Very <laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually, the Google Earth Pro documentation, like the official stuff, is really good as well. Um, once you know what tools you want to use, 
Um, you know, for example, I've mentioned the view shed tool to people before and they were pulling their hair out for an hour before they rang me and I'm like, Matt, you've got to drop the pin first. It doesn't come mm. up. You know, yeah, you can't just yeah. right click on the map. You've got to drop the pin. And, um, but mm. the, the official documentation is pretty good in that regard. So I actually oh, I found with that, if there's an existing pin, so for instance, if you open the, the Nundle or Hanging Rock map, if you right click on Ponderosa Park, you can yep. actually say view the view shed on that. Yeah. Um, so if there's existing pins that have been dropped for you, you can actually use those. Super handy, um, yeah. If you, are, you in, are you in the, in the Hanging Rock Nundle map, Jono? Yes. Go and change, go and change the, um, the elevation setting the exaggerated elevation setting to 1.5 or 2. I, actually, I, I changed mine to 2. And I, Go and put it over oh, Murderdog. You'll, you'll be scared. Well, I've I've walked Murderdog. Oh, shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've walked Murderdog. I know what it's like. So yeah, it's, it's nasty. That's, that, that's actually a valid representation of what Murderdog is actually like. That's insane. Look at that. Yeah. No, what have you got? got it on? You got it on two, Ian. I put mine on two. On one point five. I put it on two, and it just like a <laughs> you wouldn't be walking in it. Like, if you know, the normal that. view is way off. You look at it and you go, "I'll do that." Yeah. Like, um, um, John, uh, Mark, we were talking about it. You know, we mm. were talking about you know maybe going. We'll just wander through Murder Dog. Maybe we'll hold hands and skip or something because it's really easy, <laughs> and we'll get over to Tugalo in the day. No, yeah. no, 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 we won't. <laughs> Anyway, um, have, have a look be... up at Terrible Billy. That's yeah. even worse. Dropping down to that lake, the dam that's up there. It looks amazing, doesn't it? God, it's such a shame that um, it's out of bounds. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. There's, um, like we're going to start all got? over again. Do it all again. Um, oh, this is fantastic. There's another, <laughs> um, I don't know if you guys have done it before, but you can create a path just like a track instead of dropping a mm. point on Google Earth. But you can then actually turn that into um, an elevation profile. You know, you, oh, yeah. Most people, if you use Strava yeah. or something like that, then you, it shows you the elevation of your, your route. Um, if you, say, for example, are looking at where you think you know, there might be a good deer location and you want to try find or narrow down the spot where they would cross into the next system if they're spooked or if they're just transiting, yeah. if you draw a path along a ridge line from top to bottom or bottom to top and then study the elevation profile it'll show you the natural low points and um i don't want to give away too much of um errol's book but i think he's spoken about it on your podcast where you look for saddles that connect yeah, different systems so the the you know drawing a line along a ridge line and then looking at the elevation profile is a super easy way to identify the saddles because it shows you where the dips are and that they, that is what a saddle is. It's a dip yeah. um, in yeah. elevation um, as it goes along. Um, now, if you were to look at a really good topographic map where you've got um, pretty close contour lines, often you can see them yourself. But if you don't want to look at contour lines or spend time studying a 2D map, you can do that on Google Earth. And that's, that's the beauty of it. I personally actually love staring at a 2D map. Um, I think you, once you know what you're looking at, you can gather immense amounts of information from them. Um, but yeah, most people like looking at the, the satellite imagery um, on Google Earth, and that's how you can get those saddles. Because a lot of the time, the, um, the vegetation 
will obscure the shape of the ground, but the way that the elevation data is collected, it usually follows the shape of the ground rather than the um, height of vegetation in an area. So that's quite useful. Hmm. Lots of clicking going on. Yeah, I'm trying to stop, trying to half um, keep up at the same time. But yeah, there's a yeah. there's a whole Oof. world of this stuff that I didn't know existed. Mm. Looking at the shadows is still amazing. Yeah, it's super powerful. The um, one of the things I've been trying to work on, you guys, for that um, buffalo trip is the um, it's called a topographic wetness index. It's using yeah. Yeah, um, the, best, the best elevation data you can get in terms of resolution and um, you can use it, use it for a variety of outputs but the output I've been looking at for you guys is um, obviously through that region there's a heap of uh, rivers, creek lines, whatever you want to call mm, them. The roper, yeah. Yep. Mm. And the, um, you know, that information is extremely evident on a 2D map. Um, but the way elevation data is collected and analysed um, if you if you imagine a 2D image full of pixels, and if you're looking at a photo, the value of each pixel is just a shade of a color. With elevation data, each of those pixels is a height in um, meters or feet, whatever the case may be. So um, if you load up raw elevation data in a system, it looks, you know, it's grayscale from uh, white to black. Um, but the, if the resolution of the data is good, what it means is the distance between each pixel is small. So the higher the resolution, the more pixels you have in a given area of earth. What that enables you to do is find dips in the ground that are not marked on a 2D map. So if an area floods like a floodplain, and then three months after the wet, you know, you've got a trickle of water going down that big river. Um, you can look at areas where the water doesn't have the opportunity to drain away and hopefully find alternate water sources that we know the animals know. Mm. But you can't tell from looking at a map and you may not even be able to tell from looking at imagery because if you've got trees or vegetation blocking your view of the ground, um, you're not going to be able to see that no matter how much you study the um, imagery. The other thing too is even if you have good imagery, if you're looking at a massive area um, like that um, area I'm looking at for you guys, sure I could spend you know 16 hours studying that image one square kilometer at a time or I could just get the elevation data for the entire area, click go on um, you know uh, basically an algorithm and come back 10 minutes later um, and the computers told me all of the areas where relative to everywhere else there's low points in the ground that's, that's, and then it spits, uh -huh, out, spits out 50 points and I go and um, cross-reference that with imagery and go no nah, that one's just an anomaly yep that one's real and then you can kind of prioritize it as well so um, you might come up with 10 spots where you think you're going to have water um, in the dry season that isn't the river or the creek um, but you can then also, you know, apply a bit more analysis to say, right, well, this is the most likely, this is the least likely, this is the best route to go from most likely to least likely without walking 
any further than we have to. Um, it's pretty pretty cool once you get into it. Trailer yeah, parts go from Billabong to Billabong. And, yeah, I yeah. mean, we spent, we spent uh, the majority of our trip looking for water. For water. Like mm. Just on, trying to figure out where the water was. And, you know, we had some tricks on the ground. The, the white gums were certainly a giveaway where you could see them in the distance. And when, when you're talking distance, you're looking right across a, a floodplain and, you know, there's a shimmer. <laughs> you talk about seeing yeah. mirages, right? There's, yeah. there's a shimmer of trees over there and you get your binos up. If you think you've got white gums over there, then you might tackle that 10-kilometre wander to see <laughs> if there's water over there. Um, yeah. But I, I guess what you're saying is because this is a big floodplain and, you know, the what we saw when we were there, where the floods got up, you know, two metres in the air, even more, we were seeing all of the debris in the trees above. So that's well, Remember not... when we found that barramundi? Yeah. 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 In a tree. No, it was just no, on the no. ground. Where... Oh, on the ground, yeah. And it was like yeah. a reasonable, it was a pretty impressive there. fish. Decent, it was... decent fish. Yeah. How did this get where it is, you know? Yeah, yeah but we... um. If, if so, if this was flooding two to two and a half meters, we were looking at all the debris piles in the trees. You know, um, consistent that that's how much water came through the area. Mm. If that all subsides, and you're talking about low points that you can find in the ground, if you find a low point that you've color coded as medium likely, so you got least mm -hmm. likely, medium, and highly likely, if that one point has got water, are you going to find that everything else in the medium category is still likely to have water as well? So you can now say these are these are a lot more likely than 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 we thought, or if the low likely ones, you know, you find a low likely one that's that's easy to get to and it does have water, just the way the the I guess that evaporation or that sort of stuff's got to come into it as well. But um, if one's holding water, you'd think that everything at that elevation is probably holding water if it's puddled like you'd, that. You'd certainly hope so. I think one of the the factors uh, from a geology point of view that would impact that is how close the, the water table is to the surface in a given location. So um, obviously, you know, over 10 k's from one point to another, the um, how far the or how close the water table is to surface level can change quite dramatically sure. in that um, in that over that distance. And, um, you know, you might find that one that's, you know, you think is least likely to have water has heaps and then you go to one you think is most likely to water, have water doesn't because it's it's drained away quicker for whatever reason. Um, but, you know, these these are the things you learn and the more data you have on a certain piece of area, in theory, the more you can narrow that down. Mm. Um, mm. But, yeah, you've just got to, you just got to take it as a start point and then adjust it on the ground. Um, and, and this probably comes into another point that I was going to make tonight is um, you always want to be building your own little database, you know. So um, say you, you go to these 20 points in NT that we come up with and, um, you know, five of the least likely have some and, you know, none of the most likely have some. Well, You've got, you got to say, well, why? What, what do I know about that terrain when I'm on the ground? What can I tell about it? Um, do the areas that we thought were most likely have um you know more dormant vegetation and it sucks it up um quicker you know there might be little hints um that you can pick up when you're there and you know you note all that down um and you keep that in your back pocket and then next time you're running the analysis there are mathematical ways to um, incorporate that stuff um, or you know you just apply your intuition and probably find a lot of the time that's just as good as um, getting the computer to do it for you
Yeah, I think uh, sometimes yeah. it's difficult to know what to what to note. Now you're yep. talking about dormant yep. trees; they're thirstier. Um, the average bear is not even going to look at that. I don't think. Mm. Um, yep. Yeah. So knowing knowing some of the things to look for and putting that into practice, and maybe your your local forest, you know, and, and and learning about how to do that locally before you jump on a plane or drive three days nonstop. <laughs> to try and get to somewhere and hopefully the theory works. Are you guys uh, driving up this year? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Last yeah. year was was um I mean it was awesome, but it was it was hard to manage the ice, which meant we mm -hmm. had limited options for meat collection, which meant we had limited limited options for beer storage. Uh, yes. and you know, all of those good things. But <laughs> um sure. yeah, I mean, you know, we, we basically ultralighted it. You know, everyone had a backpack and a rifle and mm -hmm. everything that was in your backpack. That was pretty much it. Um, we had to hire a car out of out of Darwin to get to where we wanted to go. Um, and then you've got, you know, crazy insurance on high cars and even crazier when it's high cars in the NT. Um, you know, we puck it every time a truck went past and flicked rocks at us because yep. it was a $6,000 windscreen. <laughs> So, you know, you do that with your own car. You don't have to worry about that. Yes, it's a drive. Um, yeah. It's part of the adventure, though. Like, we'll That's right. learn yeah. more things about yeah. each other on a nonstop three-day drive, yeah. won't we? Well, it's probably, yeah. probably a day, two days by the time we, we you know, we won't uh, stop. But, but then we'll have no, a camper. Awesome. We'll have a base camp. We'll have gas cooking. We'll have hot shower. Um, yeah, you know, we'll have water storage. We'll have fridges. Yeah, multiple fridges. So, multiple fridges on solar. Like, all of that mm -hmm. stuff will be – it'll just make everything much easier. Um, yeah. And, you know, the first trip we were there, a lot of it was scouting uh, and relying on people that were taking us um, to to show us points on the property that, you know, they'd found been they'd been successful on. Now we've, we've – not to say that we know the block. It's so big. Um, mm. We know the spots we went to and we know that we could go back to spots we went to. But trying to get some of this analysis would be super helpful because rather than wandering around aimlessly looking for water sources, we can have some pretty yeah. educated guesses now about where to start. And you know what? Let's add some more to it. Send the drone up. You know, yeah. if you think oh. there's one, if you, you think you think there's water based on the data that you've got in certain areas, then you can send the drone over and have a look and see. You can validate it from the air. Mm. Tell you what, the um, so you talk about the resolution of free data available for Northern Territory. It's basically, um, imagine you put a post in the ground and then 30 metres away you put another post in the ground and took a measurement there, that's the accuracy of the data you can get for NT for free. Well, if you were to fly a drone <laughs> in an area, um, theoretically you could get you know, a toothpick every centimetre. Uh, it would break a computer, um, but you could. Um, but even if you go from you know, 30 metre resolution to 5 metre resolution, you are getting um, a massive increase in accuracy or reliability with your results um, so even just to you know say you narrowed down to all right we're going to look at this square kilometer here we're going to look at that square kilometer there and you guys send the drone up um, in those locations um, and just capture data in those spots um, you know you bring it back and um, e even if you fly it somewhere that you can't be bothered walking to um, and then next year you know we crunch the numbers and um, come up with another plan so you're saying that you can you can take video imagery or still photos because mm -hmm. drones have got excellent cameras on them these days, yep. and you can incorporate that into the data. 
Yep, for sure. For sure. Hmm. You just overlay um, that on the existing info or Yep, yep. So I've um I've done a few jobs for um small scale miners up in the gem fields. Um and basically what I did was um survey their diggings underground. Um they use that information to come up with safety plans and, you know, make sure they're digging within mm -hmm. their claim. Uh, but then, you know, a lot of them were like, well, I want to put it on Google Maps or Google Earth. I'm like, yeah, we can do that. Um, but you look at the imagery up there and it's it's crap. Um, so uh, take a drone up, uh, take a few snaps of their um, little claim from the top, and then you just bang it straight on top of Google Earth. No. So it just, you've got to georeference it, um, but when you take imagery with a drone, whether it's video or photo, um, it's usually georeferenced very accurately yep. already, especially with the, um, you know, if you're paying for more, if you're paying more than 500 bucks for your drone, you're probably getting um, pretty accurate stuff out of it. Um, and then, you know, I whip it up in the software, fine tune it a bit, drag this point here, drag that point there, you know, it might have been half a meter off, fix it up, and then you've got a really high detailed imagery layer to put your underground diggings on top of so you can picture exactly where your tunnel is in relation to the surface. And you can How obviously much, apply that to anything. If, if you were to go and get imagery, so let's say we were going to go and play this game and, um, and send the drone up over an area that you were hunting in State Forest, mm -hmm. is it best that someone goes up to maximum legal height and take stills or fly over it and then you figure it out from there i'm assuming stills is the easy answer you say it's directly above me here or you know because it's geo-reference like you say you know exactly where to to, to put mm. the center of the picture is, is that what you're looking for you're just looking for a, a high-res still yeah so what, what you need is you need um you need to take a heap of images and they need to overlap ah. yep so um you know uh, I'd have to look into it. Say roughly, good. you're looking at video is fine. The video is fine. It's just more resource intensive in computing power to do it with video than imagery. And I and I but, would assume that the video would need to be pointing directly down. It couldn't be forward facing because um, the drone normally is looking forwards. Not. It's actually better at a slight angle, so not yeah. quite perpendicular, slightly angled. And then what you the ideal situation is you um, take the imagery of the video in a grid pattern so you fly back and forth one way you turn 90 degrees and you go back over that same area and if you've got the camera on a slight angle off 90 degrees um, the photogrammetry software when it turns it into one image can match pixels from the different directions to no. tie it all in really neat yeah it's holy it's, you know, oh, wow it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And it's so easy. And you, you can do it for free. Them. You guys could do it for free yourselves. It is it is amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, the software in the drone, you go and get a little bit of add-on software. I've got some. And um, you can just you, you jump on your tablet and you plot the route. You don't yes, have to fly yep. it. You just plot exactly. the route. You send it up and it goes and flies the grid for you perfectly. You yeah. know, it's none of this, you know, wiggling around with your fingers. It goes and gets you yeah. it's sort of like seed planting on a tractor that's computerized. Mm -hmm. um, come back with that and throw it far out. And that, no, that's cool. The average imagery you're going to get at 120 meters off a drone is going to be a mile better than 
what we're getting on Google Earth because you can, I mean, you can make mm. out every tree. Yeah, yeah. You can see well, them. I mean, you, can make, you, you could probably make out the color of your hat, you know, if you're standing there as an individual. Whereas if you're looking at um, Google Earth quality imagery, you can probably make out what the color and shape of a vehicle. You might be able to tell if it's a four-wheel driver or a sedan, maybe. Um, but yeah, if you take it with a drone, you know, you, I could probably say you're wearing a black hat and a white shirt. That's um, nice. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, they're all 4K now imagery on those, so yeah, most of the drones. Yeah, yeah. Resolution. Even my, and, um, I got an early stage Mavic Pro. I don't think it's 4K, but the imagery that comes off it's still awesome. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, to create videos and stuff out of it, it's amazing. And here I am looking down at forestry at, at Nundal. And, you know, I can just imagine what that would look like if you had a 120-meter video overlaid yeah. onto it. It would be stunning. Oh, it would look so good, yeah, in comparison for sure. Sounds like you've got a new, new hobby. Mm, I'm exploring mm. uh, Google Earth. <laughs> wow, okay. Uh, so, um, so... So what you did you bump bump your exaggeration up to one point five, did you? And uh two. Yeah. One point five and then go hang out over murder yeah, dog. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about uh just, just so what, I, what I might do. It's got map size, overview of maps and stuff like that. Well, There's actually a use photorealistic atmosphere rendering. Experimental. I can do that in the atmosphere. Didn't know that one. I don't even know. Someone mute Mark while he plays with the toy. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a bit unkind, isn't it? That's a bit the, unkind. Yeah, the one, one tip I'd also give is um, a lot of people focus on, um, you know, the hunting area within your boundaries. Um, and it, I guess just in terms of general analysis, whether you're there on the ground or um, looking at it um, beforehand electronically, you should always consider the, the area around your hunting mm. area. Mm. Um, it is just as relevant as For the sure. area where you're trying right. to catch the animals in. Well, um, so deer don't deer don't particularly care. No, they can't see our boundaries, so no. they can't see the red zone. Yeah, and you know we often talk about, uh, and especially in in the hunt camp environment, you got a lot of new fellows that come through that are, you know, they're just excited to see an animal, and and you're excited for them to see an animal if you can try and find a piece of habitat that's good for them. You know, give them some instruction, send them on their way, they, yeah. and then they see deer and they come back and they're just over the moon. But mm -hmm. once they've found that habitat, you know, I was talking about home range of a deer. You know, if you've got a little group of three or four, you know, they're really hanging out in a in a in, in what I would say is a grid square, a kilometre square um, area. That's sort of what their home range looks like. They don't go too much yeah. further than that if they've got enough food and water. And if they don't, yep. then they're probably not going to make that their home range to start with. But within that one by one, where are they going? And that may be, you know, half a kilometre wide by two. Like it's 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 yep. a, a landmass area, not an exact square, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but when you see them or spook them, um, and they run up over that ridge, you know, like you say, collecting that data, that's that they've gone somewhere in their home range. They've not run out of their home range. They've mm. gone in somewhere else that they feel safe that's away from where you scared them from. Yeah. Being able to identify where those areas are going to be, where those saddles are, so mm. that you know where they're coming from the next day, or at least know, you know, what your wind direction options are. 
yeah. if you've gone and had a look at that 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 area in detail, I think it's incredibly helpful. Yeah. Um, even over the last couple of years, we've pieced together a system where a couple of the guys have been hunting. We've now explored explored further in the river systems and found where multiple river systems come into a watershed, mm-hmm. you know, and a big basin. It's um, you know, you can do a lot of that from Google Earth, but I can now do a whole lot more again, exaggerating the map that just looked like, you know, reasonably flat country before. Only in yeah. ten minutes, I can see that you can find out a whole lot more. So that's that's nuts. It's really that's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah. this is. Yeah, this is. Did I talk? Did I talk about um, combining oh, yeah, other yeah. stuff with the terrain, like climate, um, you animal behavior, oh. and stuff? So nope. Um, you know, if, if I was to, uh, if someone was to come to me and say, you know, Rob, I want you to, we're going to Victoria in September and I want to hunt this area and I want you to tell me where the animals are. Um, you know, the terrain is just one part of the puzzle and it doesn't matter what tool you use, you gather what information you can, but you need to, um, you need to cross-reference that, don't you? So there's so much information out there that people might not think to look for. There's um, with Victoria specifically, there are some amazingly detailed um, abundance and um, density studies for different deer species in Victoria that anyone can download. There was even one I found about Samba, where they actually gave you um, geospatial data that you could download, and I could put straight into my software. So when, um, when you when you say you can download geospatial data about Samba, what yep. what is that? So this one was about the density. Um, over Victoria. So imagine cutting Victoria up into hexagons that are, you know, roughly, a, say, two square kilometres each. And based on the colour of that hexagon, you could determine the density of deer in that area. You then quickly look at what national park's sitting under that hexagon in the darkest ones or the lightest ones or whatever the colour scheme was. Um, and obviously you can get some good information about where the deer are within a certain area. Um, further on that, you then combine that with climate data, uh, and climate data, you know, different to weather data being it's it's more long-term um, stuff that's being gathered. So, you know, we get on average, you know, 500 mils of rainfall um, on the Sunshine Coast in January each year versus weather being righto tomorrow, there's a 60% chance of, rain mm. at all and you know whatever the case may be um i think once you once you gather all your terrain information which we've mostly spoken about so far tonight you then cross-reference that with any other information you can get whether it's um uh, you know confirmed animal density animal migration routes um, animal behavior the food that animals eat um you know the type of vegetation they shelter in versus what they eat um, you know, a heap of that information's out there, especially when you look at um, some of the deer or, or other species hunting guides that have been published. Um, there's heaps of stuff out there. And once you, it, it can be quite overwhelming at the start. You know, you're trying to study the terrain and use all the information you have in your head. But if you just narrow whatever information you have down as much as you can, and then you grab another layer. So then you grab the climate data. And you're like, right, you know, in winter, 
um, it's going to be this temperature. Um, you know, the deer seek this kind of ground when it's cold, or they sit at this type of elevation in winter versus this elevation in summer. You can then narrow those areas that you have down for different types of year, mm. or whatever the case may be. So you just need to keep adding on top of your terrain analysis um, one layer at a time with any information you can get. And that, that, that information that you get, so let's just go back to the example of, of density. You're mm -hmm. saying that that data is out there, studies have been done. How is that data presented to you? Is it descriptive or is it is it in some sort of, I don't know, how do you apply so the, that to a map? Have you got to then go and, um, you know, go, go into the forest and find their description of density and understand what that colour looks like at that point? Or how, how are you taking it? and, and using it so the um the one i was talking about before with the samba when i was talking about the hexagons yep. that is actually already provided in a web-based map with a no. color scheme <laughs> you can also download that data and symbolize it however you like yourself but when in that same study they actually give the um it's not to the um it's not to the same resolution or breaking it down to the hexagons but you can look at by name of national park or state forest in Victoria, what the density per square kilometre is for each deer species in Victoria, which is just amazing information. And it's in a spreadsheet, right? Um, you know, most of us can use Excel to a basic level. Um, you can just add a filter and say, right, I want to know where the highest density of fallow deer is in Victoria or hog deer or salmon what? deer or whatever they've got down there, and you just filter it yourself in a spreadsheet, and then you just go, right, I'm going to pick the top five. And then you might look at those top five and go, right, well, that park is only, you know, 10 square kilometres in size, and it's right near a highway, so it probably gets shot up every day. So you might go to the next one down and say, oh, look at that. That one is at least a two-day backpack walk-in, and when the seasonal road closures are on from June to October, it's a 15K walk-in, so that's the one I'm going to go for. Uh, because there'd be less hunting pressure there, maybe. Um, yeah, that's how that's how I um, start to put that, all that information together. Mind blowing, isn't it? It is. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and and things like uh, that, I probably should have mentioned that before too. The um the seasonal road closures in in Victoria, I think, are a pretty good tool. So um, you can just go on the Victorian government's um, web mapping service. They'll show you a, you know in a color coded system. Um, when the roads are open and closed at different times of year. If you look for where the roads are closed um, and then just do basic things, you know, like you would with a compass when you're a kid in in mathematics um, and you go, right, I'm going to pick something that's at least 5Ks away from a closed gate. Um, that's pretty good information. You know, a lot of people probably aren't doing that. Um, but straight away, you're already narrowing down um, areas that, theoretically have less hunting pressure and it's all out there for free nothing mm. i've said tonight um, cost you money you just couldn't know how to use it which is yeah, yeah. What about, um, the biggest thing what about burn data so yeah fire data it it exists and it's really good it is really mm. good information um so there there is a lot of um if you go onto most state government websites in Australia, there's a data repository. You can download the best available satellite imagery for that state. Anytime there's some sort of natural disaster, probably in the last decade, 
um, some sort of emergency service or third-party contractor has probably taken imagery above that location, whether it's a flood or a fire, to um, do damage assessments and direct resources, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Almost all of that information is made publicly available. Um, if you um, think you have a good idea on how bushfire affects deer in a system, you can get that imagery and load it up and make your own assumptions, make your own plans. Uh, it's really good. Um, I, I personally don't know how deer, how fire affects deer that well. I do remember reading a chapter on it um, in the Hunt Smart book. Um, I'd have to refresh myself, but um, it's definitely out there. And then if you combine that with what I was talking about before with the buffalo stuff, so when we're looking at where we're going to find low-lying water, um, if you look at an area that's been damaged by fires and then you do that um, you know, that quick look about where the water sources are going to last the longest, you're probably going to find the area where the vegetation comes back. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. After yeah. Rain. I was actually thinking about goats. To be honest, because oh, yeah. they love fresh pig. Rocks. Yeah, right. Yep. So if you can, if you like, you know, there's been a big burn through Pilliga. So if you can figure out where the fresh yeah. pig's going to come back, yep, that's where they get. That's where they'll be. Mm. They'll be standing amongst that blackened trees on the fresh pig. Yeah. And you know, the, the more you talk about this stuff with your mates, you know, the more little tips you get like mm. that to add into your own knowledge, and then you share it together and um, I mean, I share with my mates uh, what my plans are, and they give me tips. I've got a few mates that live down in New South Wales, and um, they let me know what they think, and just build it up and build it up until I get down there. We could make you a, a, a rock profile for Pelican. Yes. John, there you go, mate. It's like rocks. We, you we spend know a week just yeah. going from yeah. rock to rock to rock to <laughs> So you know how I spoke about how you can uh, detect different types of vegetation? Yeah. Mm. It's obviously far easier to tell a rock um, from any type of vegetation. Yeah. That is certainly something you can do with, um, if you if you get the right type of um, imagery data, you can figure that out real easy. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, with the polygon, we know where those rocks are. You can then capture. Well, we know where those rocks are. Yeah. And you can circle what they look like and then yeah. use that to, yeah. to then seek out other areas. <laughs> Because I'm yeah. sure there's other rock ridge, rocky oh, ridges no, out well, there that we yeah. don't know about. hundred percent. But even the information you guys have from, you know, years of hunting these areas, right? You've, you've, I don't know if you just keep hunting diaries. I know that some people do. You I try to, to but don't you, do it that well. I do it with, I do do it with photography. That's how I, I, you know, so I know because I take yeah. a lot of photos and I, and I keep the files, I can, I can look through and I can tell you, you know, the – Photos are time stamped, and you know mm. there'll be wildflowers, or there'll be, or yep. this time around the goats were in the shade on the sand. This time they're on the rocks. This time they're, you know, yep. And that's can, that's I've awesome. got the data. I just have it in, have it, have it has have it as a photograph. Yep. And then and the other like another really powerful piece of information is timelines. Mm. Yep. So you know any information you've got, if you can time stamp it to whatever level whether it be the month or you know the hour of the day oh that's the um, thing granted with photos it tells me you know it was give you the minute probably yeah. doesn't mm. it? well i didn't yeah, then... got the minute, but at least tells me what day it is you know a little bit when we yep. before we were asking about you know the november i could say yeah it's november 2014 yeah well i mean start... with your 
with your phones, there's so much metadata that's captured with those images mm. now. It tells you exactly. the aperture and all that sort of thing and GPS yeah. yeah. location. Mm -hmm. And then you can just like, and, and that data is so easy to rip into tabulated format, like an Excel spreadsheet or CSV, and then you just filter it. You go, right, mm -hmm. I've shot 100 goats in three years or 10 years or whatever the case may be. Um, and I can, I've got all these different options. I can look at what month it was shot in. I can look at what time of day it was shot in. I can look at whether it was on the north or east of a hill, all these things. Um, and if you have that information and can be bothered to put it into a format where you can manipulate it, um, you can analyze it. And then you can put it on a map. And then you take that map with you and off you go. Yep, like, yeah, there it is. I was actually wrong. I didn't. I, I did the story in November. I shot that gate on the 9th of September, and I've got a photo of it. I've got a photo of with that gate, so yeah, I can tell you. you know, yeah, five minutes beforehand when I shot it, type <laughs> thing. So I can I can give you, I can give you that kind of detail. Yeah, yeah. No, so when you're so looking at, um, yeah. you're looking yeah. at. Uh, none wow. of, didn't really uh, give it that much consideration. How much? I've I've always kept it as a diary, but I've never thought. Oh well, you know, I, I can get down to the to the minute here. And I mean, if if you've got time to just go out and hunt every week, you're not going to spend six hours on your weekend doing this, are you? You're just going to no. go out and have a crack. But if yeah. you're only going to go, you know, a couple of times a year, or you live in the middle of Sydney, or you got to drive down from Townsville, um, you're going to spend more time on it, aren't you? I think. Mm. Um, I think people would like to be more informed when they go in. Uh, you know, it's easy mm. to go into some of these state forest parks knowing that there are animals coming out of it because you see, you see it on social media, you hear people talk about it. We mm. know there are good volumes of animals in Nunderland surrounding parks. What are you doing specifically pre that trip? What do like, I do? Yeah, what, what are you specifically thinking about uh, trying to pull together? I know you're going to organise some maps for us to work mm. with. Um, just so that we can keep track of people while we're there, you know, better quality maps. But yep. you're not going to share all your tricks. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to what you plan for now. Like how how many times have you been to Nundal? Uh, I've only been to Nundal once. I've been to Hanger right. Rock twice. So you've been, three so times you've, now. You've been to the area a few times. Yeah. Yeah. What 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 are you what are you gathering now from public sources to overlay on these maps to help you this year? What's what's your process? Uh, so the the elevation data, like I mentioned a few times, yep. is probably the most useful. You can really identify choke points, um, transit routes with that information. Do you want to describe the other thing? Choke, choke points to the listener. Yeah, sure. So there's different ways that um, uh, animals or humans themselves um, will. Uh, get funneled by the terrain. So um, one of those ways is the uh, the steepness of the terrain. Generally, um, animals will follow a contour, so they'll walk at the same elevation around a feature, yeah. even if the feature is quite steep. Like you can, you know, most people can probably imagine a tar um, walking along at the same elevation until it has a reason to run up or down. Um, so elevation is one way that um, animals are funneled. Another one is the vegetation. Uh, so the, 
you know, obviously they'll often use um, vegetated areas to conceal their movement, moving from one spot to another. They'll often come to the fringes. So often the fringes of um, vegetation are really good areas to pay more attention to. Um, things like fence lines. If you are, you know, most state forests I've been to, the boundary is somewhat fenced. Um, so they, that is um, something you can look for too. Even if you can't see the fence, if you know that there's a boundary there because you've downloaded the DPI map, you can have a guess that there's a fence there. And what that means is that somewhere on that fence is going to be where the animals jump it or duck under it um, more often than anywhere else. So mm. That's a little um, channel you can look for. And the, the other major feature that um, funnels animals is uh, waterways, creek lines, rivers, um, even just little re-entrants that might not have water in them um, at all or all throughout the year. Uh, they're, they're the kind of areas I focus on. Um, I think the most useful one is to look for the crossing points from one valley to another, especially for people like bow hunters, where they spend mm. more time ambush hunting than stalking, um, and where they're looking for a you know a close engagement rather than shooting um, from one hill to another. Um, they're the type of things I look for in terms of terrain. The, the other the thing I'll probably pay the most attention to, to be honest, um, coming into the hunt camp will be the weather, the weather conditions. So looking at the wind forecast, um, the windy weather app is really good. You can zoom in and it will give you little arrows um, of where the wind's going to go. Um, obviously, if you zoom too far in, those arrows can become irrelevant, but you can mm. get a really good sense of prevailing winds. And if you don't have a super erratic piece of terrain where you know the the valley changes direction every 100 meters um, you're going to get a decent idea of um, what a prevailing wind is going to do to that system like i think i've got it i think i've got it pretty dialed in with hanging rock hmm. um, where i'm going to go uh, or what approach i'm going to take for any wind condition down there now because i've yeah. been down there a few times and you know luckily the few times i've been there the wind's been really different um, but I could gather that information before I get there about a new place. I don't need to be there on the ground to experience that. I can look at Nundal, um, even though I've only spent a day walking through there. Um, I can look at it on a map and have a make a pretty good estimate about prevailing wind conditions and what it means for different areas that I think look good. Uh, so that's definitely something I'll be focusing on um, coming into hunt camp. Um, other things are extreme weather changes. So you know, if if snow um, is forecast or um, becomes a thing when we're there or the week before we're there, that's obviously going to have an impact on um, the fallow behaviour or whatever target um, species you're looking for. Um, so that's something as well. You know, whether, you know, am, am I going to spend more time focusing on choke points or am I going to spend more time using the um, sunrise tool on Google Earth to find where the sun's going to come up because it's been absolutely freezing? Mm. Uh, where it's mm. been snowing for two days and those deer I know are going to be looking for sun the first time it comes out. Um, yeah. Well, then, it's, you know, conversely, it's, it's um, so if it's going to be super it? overcast, yeah. I'm going yeah. to focus maybe more on the choke points. So, yeah. Much to consider. Yeah, and, about. And, and so many variables which change what mm. you consider, to your point there, Rob. Mm. 
uh, the, you know, the, the sun becomes super important uh, off the back of a really cold night. Yeah. You know, so that becomes a focus. I, I think to keep it to keep it simple, um, you know, if if it seems a bit overwhelming, um, the first thing is just learn what you can about the animal's behaviour and the general type of terrain they like. Find two or three of those spots, and then look at the weather forecast, or you know, um, just consider from different prevailing weather conditions how it might impact each of those few locations um, and then go and have a look go and have a look see what you find um, if you can be bothered write a few notes down might help you out later um, yeah I'd say keep it simple use Google Earth find a few good spots check the weather forecast out or the climatic conditions for that time of year um, and just start to stack it up once you get comfortable with that you can get a bit more creative well well, I reckon um, it's going to add another element to hunt camp to have your knowledge around, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, to, for people to be able to come back from where they are and, and bring a little bit more of that information back and, and talk about it, discuss it and, and make these plans. That's what the camp's all about. It always has been, you know, getting people to go out and, and identify things and try and find the right places and then come back and talk to the group about a plan of attack based on wind, based on all sorts of different things. So, yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a really interesting dynamic, I think, uh, that, that you bring bring to the camp. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, cheers. I'm looking forward to uh, learning how to how to butcher some animals. Trade, we'll trade. Uh, I'll okay. train yeah. for some of those those yeah. hanging rock spots. That's for sure. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I was, I, I've been thinking about what you said about contouring, you know, and yeah, I'm thinking, you know. I'm thinking about, you know, how many animals I've shot often when I'm above them shooting down. Because mm. yep. that's what I like to do. I like to, I don't. Yeah, never, never give away elevation to an animal. No, that's that's right. one thing I've learned but the hard way. What, I, what I, I've realized is that, in a way, I wasn't giving away elevation. It, was, it, was, it wasn't north-south, it was east-west. Ah, yep, yep. So it's, you're not. It's not like oh they'll go past me. Mm-hmm. It's that no, this is I I can inter I, my view will allow me to intersect mm-hmm. the elevation in which they're contouring on. Mm. Yep, definitely. So it you know you kind of think about elevation as well. You you think about elevation from your human point of view is I have to get elevation or I bleed elevation. Yeah. For the animal, it's not. It's they're you know it's they're traveling that way, traversing it. Yeah, they're traversing it. So what you want to do is you want to be above it so you can have the ability to see them moving across in front of you rather than catching them coming up and downhill. I mean, I have caught animals coming up and down. Yeah, but in the most instances, I've caught them on the traverse. Yeah, me too. Me too. I would say for sure. Yeah, they're, 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 you know oh, there they are. They're moving that way. I mean, the last time I was down in Nundal, I had. My my son and a mate who's never really hunted before, and I spotted pigs below us, and they were kind of moving sideways, mm-hmm. and uh, didn't get them because you know I said they, I said pigs, and both of them went where, <laughs> <laughs> and but but even then the pigs didn't run downhill; they continued on on that contour. Yeah. They just continued on it a lot quicker than when I first saw them, yeah. <laughs> but that's 
really quite interesting, that contour idea. Mm. Oh, I'm looking forward to putting some of these little bits into practice. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, that, um, that uh, you know, the uh, changing the, you know, the, what was it the at exaggerated elevation? Mm. Yeah. Elevation, exaggeration. Yeah. That has just fundamentally changed how you look at none. Straight up. Yeah. yeah. Well, like yeah. that campsite, when the one that we stayed in, when you looked at it in the normal view, it didn't make sense. You can find that campsite really easy now on the map because. You you knew where it was physically because you'd been there, but on the map it didn't look like where you thought it was. You know, it looked mm. like it was in a flat. Yeah. But no, it's not. Now. And that and that and that huge expanse behind it where it drops away, you can see, you can you get a much better understanding of all that now, where the the boundary line is, and all that. So yeah, that's 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 a really impressive. You know, it gives that such a different viewpoint all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. Any other uh, little things that you might have missed or haven't had the opportunity to say anything before we wrap up? I think we've we've I think, uh, smashed people's yeah, I think brains enough. That'll do. If I if I think of anything else, I'll bring it to Hutton Camp. Yeah, do that, and um, mm, yeah. hopefully we can get the opportunity to um, just do a quick video tutorial mm. that shows. Mm. You know, click by click, I guess, where to go in um, Google Earth. There's plenty of people yep. that have never used it before, so this could be a bit challenging. But, um, geez, what you've shown us in, in an hour is pretty, oh, pretty mind blowing. Yeah, it is. Well, I hope it helps someone. Um, obviously, you guys gave out, uh, you know, I, I listened to your first few um, podcasts, you know, episodes one to five or whatever it was about the different systems for the state forest, and that was. So helpful to me, uh, especially taking my boys out. Um, so glad to pay it back a bit. No, that's um, awesome. Hopefully someone else out there gets some use out of it. Yeah, good stuff. All right, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks, mate. It's been awesome again and um, look forward to catching you at camp. Uh, Jono's probably going to be there. Mark might show up, Cam our appearance, see how things go. But um, yeah, it's going to be a busy uh it's going to be a busy few few months ahead. So uh, good luck with the hunts. If you get a, get onto Reds, good luck with them. And uh, otherwise, we'll see you shortly. Awesome. Yeah, we'll see, see you in camp, there. mate. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for your time, Rob. We really appreciate it, mate. Thank you.